quietly, don't bleed to death, because we're recording. I hate it when they bleed to death. He could have, he had all morning to bleed to death. Okay, I know that we're supposed to talk about Okay, I don't know what we're supposed to talk about, but okay, whatever it is, I want to tell you this other story first because I'm really mad. Well, then you should tell me the other story. You know how when your babies are young, you're very in the moment because otherwise the house will burn down. Because there's no other choice. <laughs> well, but also like there are these moments that they crawl in with you in the morning and they're like, you're the most wonderful. And you like hold on to those moments. Like you're really in there. Yes. I've been noticing that now that my babies are at a different stage, I'm like way more living inside my tasks and in this is my plan for later and blah, blah, blah. So I'm trying to become more grounded. So I thought I would look up Buddhism because everybody always recommends Buddhism. <laughs> I have a vague sense of where this may go. So <laughs> YouTube recommends this monk that is living in Thailand now. So he's talking about this video. It shows a monk doing his little life. And he's like, and many of you were shocked that a Buddhist monk would be cleaning the toilet. But we do that because it's important to be of service. And, you know, you live your whole life thinking only of your own needs and doing your own things. And uh -huh. this is a time to think only of another person. <laughs> Can you believe it? The enlightenment. <laughs> I don't really think of other people when cleaning a toilet. I used to do that. When I would do the boring mundane tasks, I would think about the larger purpose and how happy other people would be. When I was a mother, which is when you learn that skill. Which is always until you're dead. Well, yes. But when they're little, <laughs> you're thinking about other people's needs 24-7 all the time. Not as part of your morning True. routine. Before you do the great task of sitting undisturbed on a mat by yourself for two hours thinking about whatever you want like that's a thing oh and they like people might think it's gross do you know how many times i reached out my hand to catch a child's vomit and snot as it spews out of its mouth with my bare hand and i do not make a youtube video about it i did not like this guy <laughs> so i'm sitting there yelling at the youtube screen like don't you have a mother <laughs> and anthony looks over and he's like what are you doing i'm learning about buddhism and then Anthony looks kind of confused and he goes, I think maybe you're doing it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Yay, Anthony. So then yesterday when I said he has to be quiet because I'm going to be teaching Sunday afternoon, he goes, what are you teaching? I'm like, I'm teaching the Canadian Unitarian Council class on spiritual practices. <laughs> and then there's this really, really worried look from Anthony. And then there's this pause and he goes, you know what we should do before you teach? We should watch reruns of The Good Place. <laughs> Then I'm like, you're thinking I'm like Eleanor, aren't you? You're trying to get a little bit of TD in before I go and teach this class. Lest I become like the YouTube monk of like, guess what I do? I'm so enlightened. Which you could see me doing that. Yeah, it could happen for a minute and a half. So I was hoping you would tell me all the spiritual practices so that next week when I'm teaching again, I taught yesterday, it's like a five week class and it went well yesterday, but I was a little bit like a fire hose. Fortunately, there's three of us. So I like give my fire hose of ideas. And then I say, mm -hmm. and now I'm going to transition to Joan and Lynn, who will talk about actual spiritual practices because they did not <laughs> fail out of seminary like I did. So since you also didn't fail out of seminary... <laughs> You know, I uh, helped design this course, right? I know people mentioned that's why you should be able to give me crib notes. By the way, some of the notes you left behind are not as decipherable as others. Hmm. Do they have my name on them or are they just random notes other people left? Maybe. Yeah, I think that they're notes about how to do it in person and we are trying to do it on Zoom. <laughs> mm. Mm -hmm. 
That is a big transition from in-person to Zoom. It is a big transition. Do you see me avoiding the question? (laughs) (laughs) That's because I told you you were going to talk about church administration. And then I was like, tell me about the spiritual practices one can use to achieve enlightenment. And and don't do it wrong or I'm going to yell at you like that monk. I would invite you (laughs) to get curious about what it is. Did you hear my minister? Yeah, I can hear it. In your life that keeps you going. Oh, I have no idea. That's why I was confused is because it used to be my children. And now, I mean, it still is in a big picture kind of way, but not in a this 45 minutes they're going to burn down the house kind of way. In a coaching program I'm participating in right now, they're talking about what must you do? Yeah. Not like clean the toilet or else the house will get condemned kind of must. But the must of what, if you don't do it, will you break? Ah. So what must you do? And there's clues in that to what is sustaining to you. Huh. Spiritual practices, sometimes some of our folks kind of take three steps backwards when you say that because spiritual isn't a word that really speaks to them. I think of them as sustaining practices. That did come through in your notes. Yes. They were really clear about that you don't have to use the word spiritual <laughs> if it doesn't work for you, which was helpful for me because it doesn't. If you have a spiritual practice, it is a sustaining practice. Yeah. But if you don't have a connection with spiritual language or experiences or anything what is a sustaining practice still language you can understand right what keeps you going okay so i'm going to tie this into the administration that we were going to talk about because remember how i said we were going to talk about administration and then i talked about buddhism (laughs) for context we just came out of the mirth and dignity big board meeting of the year everybody and Anne is on the board of mirth and dignity and i think what i love about how that organization runs is we sort of did do that we were like what are the essential pieces of the organization? And within Unitarian Universalism, there's 40,000 things that you think are essential and you have to have meetings every month and you have to blah, 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 blah. And then Fujon's helped me to be like, wait a sec, what are the things you have to do to continue to exist as a not-for-profit right? and to continue to have the core things like the hysterical society run in a way that is not violent towards our moderators? <laughs> right. And that was actually incredibly helpful and freeing to do as an organization too to be like what are the actual necessities because the list of necessary things as a charity or not-for-profits are really short list right you have to meet the legal characteristics and then you have like your cultural or your identity pieces that if you described yourself one way and you don't live up to that they can pull the plug on you yes those are those are really important things. Well, and you want to do a good job of being who you are. Like you exist for a reason. So if we were like the Unitarian Universalist Hysterical Society and then we were doing something that was radically against the values of UUism, I guess that we would, would lose bad. our charitable status for that too. Probably. Well, I think mostly we'd just lose any sense of ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun though uh, to think about the difference between... Mirth and Dignity is an organization, the umbrella organization of the whole shebang, Mm -hmm. and congregations as an organization. Mirth and Dignity does not have a long history. It doesn't have an identity founded on for decades or centuries. We have been in this little stone building on this piece of property. We were the first something somewhere or the last, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. We don't have those deep historical roots. We have a story and we're making it up as we go along. And we put the minimum amount of infrastructure around each thing. Exactly. And I think because we've hung out as church ladies for so long, we're also looking for let's not fall into that pothole, whatever that (laughs) pothole is. So there's some potholes we want to avoid, like we've always done it this way. So we have to keep doing it this way, which is a question we ask at every meeting. We've been doing it this way. That didn't work. Now what will we do? 
Or is doing it this way good? Okay, keep doing it. Let's not discuss that anymore. No point. Everybody agrees. Move on. Where in congregations, the history is as long as the memory of the people in the room. Mm -hmm. And some of them are really attached to a story. And some of them think it's all brand new because they've only been here six weeks. Yeah. Mirth and Dignity is completely online and congregations, well, our mind's completely online right now anyway, <laughs> but have been in this physical sense and we have been defined by our physical meeting houses, right? Like yeah. all the government regulations around COVID are for house of worship. We are a house of worship. And all of a sudden, we're a Google house of worship now. <laughs> we're like, we're Zoom worship. It's really kind of neat in this interruption time of COVID because it took us right to what are the essentials? Yep. What do we have to do just to meet that basic core of who we are? Congregations pared down to what are the essentials to keep our charitable status and also to keep our people from killing themselves in this hard time. Which is right. the crucial piece, right? Reach out to each other yeah. directly and just continue to exist. I, I love that. Well, and those are the things that bubble up, right? Yeah. You have the legalities you have to meet, which aren't that hard, although many of us had to make <clears throat> little bylaw changes <laughs> like that you could hold an annual meeting online or something, yep. right? So you have that legal piece, but then the things that really stuck were Sunday services was the first thing we tried to recreate. And then the committee work, even most of it fell away. Yeah. The thing was, how do we keep the people connected? And not just to the church, but to one another. How do we keep them connected? And all kinds of old fashioned things came out of the trunk. She's making a hand signal like a telephone. <laughs> no, I was reaching with my thumb over my shoulder, like for behind oh, me. Oh, pardon me. <laughs> I should have known that that's where you wait, keep your old fashioned wait, thing. Let me get my crank telephone so that we can. I remember when we started like the organizational meetings of Mirth and Dignity and it started to inflate in the same way a church would. And it got more and more complicated. And I went, one of our big assets is Fugence, who runs a very lean organization and has run a variety of very lean organizations in Africa. And comes with cultural difference, right? If you're running a church, you don't have the money to pay your minister full time. So his version of a church has to work alongside his day job. So they run it way differently. And my version also, I don't necessarily have a day job in the same way, but I have no interest in working 40 hours a week on mirth and dignity. So we have to be structured similarly. And I remember being like, oh no, it's in how is this happening? And I was like, Fugence, you have to tell me what we need to do differently. And there's this pause. And he's like, you don't know. And I'm like, no, that's why I'm asking you. Like, why do you think we're always doing it this way? And he's like, oh, I thought it was because white people like doing it that way. <laughs> 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 like he didn't know and still has trouble believing that we run the other way because we think that's how you have to run. It's been really right. interesting. Right. <laughs> so I want to come back and ask you, how is it that you ended up being one of the leaders <laughs> of the Serving with Spirit Spiritual Practices program? Yeah, I threw you a bone for a transition there because I, I made reference to flunking out of seminary and you were supposed to interrupt me and take it off in that direction. Oh, I'm sorry. I missed that. You did not really invite my interruption in that moment with a pause. <laughs> I never invite your interruption. And it never stops you otherwise. That's true. <laughs> so why why do you think they picked you? Well, you weren't available like last time. 
Okay, when it was held here in Edmonton in the first round of Serving with Spirit, so we were staying in Providence Retreat Center, and there were a whole pile of folks from Edmonton who decided they, in an off time, they were going to go for a walk and go to the store and something. And they walked and walked and walked along the fence line and never found a break in the fence. And then at some point, they actually had to crawl under a dent in the fence <laughs> where somebody had already tried to break out of the fence, which made me think, why? Why are people trying to break out of the fence of this spiritual retreat center? You could have called that a pilgrimage. <laughs> right. It was led by Lauren. So you can imagine that it would have been a creative adventure. There is photographic evidence of that moment. That is how I know about it. This is the difference between your definition of a spiritual practice and mine, because how I define spiritual practice is I like when I was like, you can think of crawling under that fence as a form of spiritual blah, blah, blah. My take home from seminary was whatever it is you want to make people do, you just say it's part of their spiritual practice, and then maybe that's how you get them to do it. That's funny. My take home from seminary is that you just can't make people do anything. <laughs> Strangely, we attended the same seminary. <laughs> Perhaps I broke them before you got there. I don't think you're supposed to make people do things. My take home from a class or conversation often comes from whatever I happened to be thinking of at the moment that the class or conversation was occurring. So you never answer my question. Why do you think they invited you to do this program? <laughs> I'm representing me and Anthony here in this moment. <laughs> you're representing a lot of people. Um, I'm not sure you would have to ask them. <laughs> Oh, you could do better than that. Come on. I think maybe it's because they're trying to live more into the idea that Unitarian Universalism isn't just a church thing. And I'm a person mm -hmm. who does it outside of church things. Mm -hmm. And so when I talk about practices, I am often bringing in YouTube videos and stories from TikTok, even though I'm not on TikTok, but I hear good things by reading Facebook. You just poach other people's material. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is what I notice is that the best of other platforms will pro platform hop because they're so good. So there's no point in being on all the platforms. Exactly. They will show up in your feed. You will have them all. <laughs> I bet that it is also because you are a lot of fun. Yes, although I am also just a lot. Like, I was very aware yesterday <laughs> that I'm like, I have so much information to give you. Bam, 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 bam. And then I was like, oh, God, what did I do to them? But then two people asked incredibly, really good, insightful questions. Nice. And so nice. I was like, okay, clearly this. There was some value to this thing that I just did. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I missed up because I missed a really good important point because I'm currently writing the script for the new podcast, which tells mm -hmm. the story of the whole idea of alternate ministries with ministries being a real broad term for whoever wants to do a thing in a way that is meaningful. And so it's like the flunking out of seminary and the hysterical society and the flaming chalice international stuff and that whole journey. And how do you figure out how to live in this new society, basically? So it's 10 episodes of me. That was a very fast summary. But anyways, I'm <laughs> writing this thing and I'm also writing Serving the Spirit at the same time. And there was like a whole paragraph that I wrote in the podcast script and I thought I moved it over and I didn't. So there was this uh -oh. jump of ideas ideas that made no freaking sense and someone asked it as a follow-up question so I was able to fill it in but oh I felt like an idiot that's funny that's not funny that's, that's funny. <laughs> it's a growth experience yes so anyways if people get really into this episode in which we discuss church administration policy and how the Merton Dignity Board runs if that is your jam watch out for this new podcast <laughs> <laughs> I think it would be more fun to discuss the difference between being a minister and ministry. I never know how to talk about that. The reason that I don't use the word ministry was originally because if I say blah, 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 my ministry, 
There are some ministers who get real grumpy about that because I didn't do the things and I didn't jump the hurdles and I am not in the club. So where do I get off saying ministry? You shouldn't let yourself be confused with a minister. So I'm just checking what kind of podcast we are. Are you going to list them? The people? (laughs) (laughs) No. Oh, wait, we're a humor podcast, not a slander podcast. (laughs) Because the next sentence is that I stopped worrying about that so much when I realized that the ministers who get the jumpiest about that are the ministers I least wish to emulate. (laughs) There you go. Very important tool. There's part of your sustaining practice research. (laughs) You do not want to be a part of your life and your practices. So then I was like, no, I can use this word because the only people who will be mad at me about this and ostracize me are people where the ostracizing is a benefit anyways. And the people <laughs> who I want to emulate think that's fine. But now I kind of shy away from the term because I don't know that it means anything to regular people. Mm-hmm. And I need a word that means something to people. I was thinking about that and how if you are a professional minister, by which I mean you are credentialed in some mm-hmm. way, yep. you may or may not be paid depending on the role that you're doing. We call that a minister and that what the work you do is a ministry. And then if you are not a professional minister, then you are a lay Mm -hmm. leader. But then when you say, I don't know if that even means anything, I thought I was so smart when I came up with, no, you're a lay leader and this is your ministry. Mm -hmm. But unless you have a sense of professional (laughs) ministry in your life, lay leader means nothing. Also, there's a different thing because we always talk in the Unitarian Universalism about shared ministry. And what shared ministry is supposed to mean is everyone's a minister in their own way and discover what is your meaningful thing. Too often in practice, what shared ministry means is I need to find somebody to put out all the chairs on Sunday morning. And so I'll do that whole cleaning the toilet redefinition thing and say, but think of the meaning of this. And this is valuable and important, which is sort of true. But it also means that shared ministry means finding your place in someone else's jobs. When I'm talking about it, I'm trying to say not what's your job at church, what do they need you to do, and how are you going to force yourself to think of this as a spiritual practice, but rather what is it that you really love and what's uniquely you. And so they have that Howard Thurman quote about don't think about what the world needs, think about what makes you come alive. And I remember thinking back in seminary, well, that's just stupid and self-indulgent to just focus on what makes me come alive because for some people, sure, but I'm living in a world where there's African people starving to death and what makes me come alive is reading funny Facebook memes on the internet and what do you do with those? <laughs> Ironically, you leverage them to help the starving African people. Ironically, you build an organization based on funny Facebook memes that helps raise money for food in Africa. So I think that is an excellent <laughs> ministry, Liz. Right, except for ministry is not a word that normal people use. How do people who don't use theological language talk about that sense of higher calling in their lives? Yeah, because, you know, the next word I was going to go to was call or calling. Also a minister word. But I think that's also a word that makes it out into the world. Yeah, maybe. That's true. You know, that person does their job kind of mechanically, like they do a good job, but, you know, they go home and they don't think about it again. And then somebody, you might say, oh, you know, that person who works at the coffee shop, like they really treat their work like a calling. That's true. Now, that's not to say that all the things we choose will be a calling. You know, you can have a career that you love and you're building skills and mastery and stuff. It still might not be your calling. Mm -hmm. But if it's something back to the what can you not do, like what? What is the thing that you must do in the world? That to me is kind of how you get it. Where is your call? My first call was to a place, not to ministry, right? It was that I drove into Saskatoon, full moon on the midnight river down by the big castle. And I just knew I was home and I belonged there and I had to move there. You are the only person who has had that experience about Saskatoon. It's a flat, dead rock of snow and ice. Hush your mouth. (laughs) 
It is beautiful. <laughs> and I love it. And, you know, I was a BC kid who grew up with mountains and ocean and all the pretty greenness all year long. When my sorry butt in the car gets out on the prairies, <laughs> everything in me relaxes and my shoulders go down and I go, ah, huh. something about that big sky and the open space and there's no part of you that gets bored bored is not one of my characteristics that, yeah that's I true, am never bored. That's true. I am self-entertaining <laughs> and I am constantly Lori will often say to me have you not learned enough for today <laughs> I am constantly absorbing material taken in other people's wisdom or reading stories or listening to books or doing th- I love it like as a kid I used to say that to my mom all the time I'm bored and she'd say here watch cartoons and eat cheesies what my mother said clean the bathroom when i said when i got a list of chores you got fucking cheesies well no wonder you reacted to the monk with the bathroom and the toothbrush i gotta uh, say you know i never cleaned the bathroom as a child <laughs> my mother said if you're bored clean the bathroom i never cleaned the bathroom wendy cleaned the bathroom when i was a child in elementary school one of my chores was to clean the front hall bathroom my parents used to say you have the weekend to clean it and then what they thought was a stick they could dangle over my head was or a carrot maybe was and you can't leave the house until you've cleaned the bathroom so they thought I would clean the bathroom so I could go I didn't care I had boys I didn't have to go anywhere and so it would be like it's bedtime oh darn I have to go clean the downstairs bathroom on Sunday night at bedtime because otherwise I can't go to school and I did like to go to school if you loved going to school so much why were you such an avid unschooler oh that's a whole podcast in itself can we just like make that a whole podcast yeah The short story for today is um, I read this fantastic book called The Teenage Liberation Handbook, which I understand has just come out with a new edition, Mm. which I must now get my grubby little paws on. And it has a chapter on what is beneficial about school, and it has a chapter on what is harmful about school. And the chapter about what is harmful about school just way outweighed the beneficial one for me. And that made me an avid unschooler. And if you want to know more, you'll have to wait till the month when that's the podcast. (laughs) Oh, then we can tell the story about how when I met you, I made a chart of our parenting styles in my diary. (laughs) Yeah, that went really well. (laughs) Long story short, our children survived because we knew each other. (laughs) We shored up each other's weaknesses. That's how it works. All the feels, all the skills, somewhere in between is our children. Yeah. So in this coaching program that I'm taking that I will be insufferable about for the next 300 days. Is this this one about dominoes? It's the one with the dominoes. Tell them the dominoes thing because that's not insufferable. No, no, that wasn't sarcastic. It's really not insufferable. It's really good. This is me trying to tell the story. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> You're done needing encouragement and what you need now is enough silence to get a word in edgewise. Okay, go, go, go. I'm not going to leave. So Brian Johnson runs this program called Optimize Coach. Brian Johnson does all these little plus ones, which is just like a minute and a half blurb about a thought or an idea. And he has one about dominoes. And he talks about how when you set up a row of dominoes, first domino has the force to knock over a domino that's one and a half times its weight. And so the dominoes can get progressively bigger. So if you have this little teeny tiny domino at the front end and you push it over if each domino is half as big again it it had some bizarre fact like 36 dominoes later the first domino is five millimeters high and the last domino is the height of the empire state building and so what he's saying is you just put your effort into the next right thing the next right action what's one little thing you can do towards your goals 
and you build momentum and it tips domino after domino after domino. Of course, that means you have to keep doing bigger and brighter actions over and over again, which I'm going to, you know, challenge somewhere. It also means your dominoes have to be located in the right spot relative to the other dominoes. Well, and who could lift the Empire State Building domino to do the test? I mean, come on. <laughs> what, what fresh hell is this? I love this idea that it takes just the amount of effort to do the first action that gives you more power and force to tip the second action and the third and the fourth. And it just builds. And I listen to it almost every day because it gets me really excited. Can I riff off of that with a piece off of your metaphor? I wish you would. <laughs> so when you were talking, I was thinking back to uni university physics because I love Newtonian physics. And I was thinking about, is that true? One and a half times? And I was thinking about how you would have to space them exactly right. So they probably mean in ideal conditions. It was an experiment, right? A scientific experiment. I'm sure they know where to place them. But if you put it too close, the other domino will knock for sure, but you won't get the full kinetic potential. So you can't upgrade as fast. And if you put it too far, it won't knock over the other one. And I was thinking about how in what we are calling ministry because we don't have a better word one of the things that I have run into is that I'm not nested in the same world that you and many of the other UU ministers are nested in which nest is this you speak of <laughs> we know sometimes <laughs> you mean the congregational nest <laughs> You know, sometimes I'll say things like, that's too many disclaimers, it's made the video boring. And when we drill down, we don't have a difference in values, we have a difference in practice and a cultural difference. Right, yeah, in yes. style. Yes. And I think that that comes from the fact that you're nested quite close in with Unitarian Universalism and I'm far away, almost too far away. And how hard it is when we're looking at doing our religion in totally different ways and not saying it has to be a church and not saying it has to be this and not saying it has to be that. There's a real challenge in getting far enough away that you have your domino force that you right. can do interesting things. But if you get too far, you're missing the domino entirely. If you're too close, you aren't realizing your potential. Nice work, Liz. Very profound. <laughs> we started with Newtonian physics. We got to a spiritual point. You can't go wrong with Newtonian physics. Well, I think you can, but still. <laughs> I really like that idea about needing enough space. I think you need enough space to see things, to see possibility and potential. Yep. I am always thinking sometimes you need to step back. You need to just give yourself a little bit of distance from mm -hmm. what you're doing. Mm -hmm. So stop looking at the nitty gritty of the thing you're trying to fill out on your computer. Step back. Think about what's the bigger picture. What are you trying to capture here? And come back with, with a fresh yeah. mind. Before we go, fell into the domino spiral. Mm -hmm. I was talking about in the coaching program, they have this quiz they send you off to do that is to identify your core characteristics or your virtues. What are the what are the things that really matter to you? What what makes up who you are? What are yours? That's a good question. My list is upstairs. <laughs> it's clearly very impactful. So I can't answer it. <laughs> you said you learn a lot. You didn't say you learn it well. Well, I can tell you, I can actually tell you the kinds of things they are. I've done two different versions of the test and they're slightly different. One virtue is justice in the sense of fairness, like mm, yeah, yeah, including all people, not treating somebody poorly because they're different than you, that kind of justice. But not retribution. It's interesting those are the same words because you're real big on include everybody. But lots yeah. of people would say justice is you give appropriate retribution to the person who's done something wrong, which I would say is not your core value at all. <laughs> I am not a punisher. I don't think that uh, I don't think that accomplishes anything. Interesting that justice means both of those things. I am sometimes a separator, right? Oh sometimes yeah, yeah. We need <laughs> boundaries. We need a fence. Quarantine, preferably one you can't crawl under and get in my skin. 
<laughs> but anyway, so justice is one. Creativity is really high on both versions of the mm-hmm. test. Like out of 24 characteristics, your top five are supposed to be the really informative ones. Creativity came up high in both of them. Love came up really high in one and the other one was kindness. And I think they were complementary that mm-hmm. way. Um, curiosity, I think, was my number six. Mm-hmm. And I know that creativity and curiosity are like core values in my universe. And I can't remember what the other one was. So clearly it's a lie. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, what they tell you to do with these, and this is back to the idea about making something a calling. So anything could be a calling. Mm -hmm. The monk cleaning the toilet, that could be a calling Mm -hmm. if he views it in that way. Mm -hmm. You cleaning the toilet could be a calling if you view it in that way. I'm guessing you Mm. don't view it that way. I (laughs) definitely don't view it that way. Nope. Not a thing, but it's um, it's that idea of chop wood, carry water. And what do you do when you're enlightened? You still chop wood and carry water. I'm not grumping at him for cleaning the toilet or for seeing it a calling. I'm grumping at him for making a YouTube video like he's the first person to ever clean a toilet. Like it's super special. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so in the thing, they say, take a look at what your core characteristics and your virtues are. And then you have to figure out how to bring those into the work that you're doing, whatever you're doing. Whether it is cleaning toilets or serving coffee or being a professional minister in a congregation or running a nonprofit that does funny things on the internet and Mm -hmm. raises funds for charity, you have to figure out how to get those characteristics represented in there because if you don't, you won't be happy. Mm -hmm. And you won't have a sense of meaning or purpose. So it could just be a job that you go to and you do, and then you go home and you watch TV or you (laughs) do something (laughs) more fun than what you think your job is. But if you want your job to shift from just a paycheck or a career into a calling, you apply your core characteristics and virtues to it. That makes sense. Right? So if you looked at it and said, you know, so justice, top of my list on both of them. So if I was working in the coffee shop, I would say, how do I make this a place where all people feel welcome? I think it's funny when we were first talking about Unitarian Universalism and you becoming a minister, which is my idea. I came up with the idea to be a minister first. And I told Anne to be a minister first. And I remember you were trying to figure out the finances of it. And you said, but I'll just be a minister, even if I'm a minister working in Starbucks, was always your example. I will point out that every time you use that sentence, it is always a coffee shop. (laughs) You never say I could be a minister that working in the till line at the grocery store. Clearly, the coffee and the ministry are somehow intertwined in your soul and heart. I love coffee. And I love, you know, when people say, what is it you love about ministry? One of the top things that comes up is I love going for coffee with someone. I love to sit over a cup of coffee and talk about what's going on in your life or what's important or what do you need? That's one of my favorite things in the whole universe. I remember in like our one of our first Patreon gatherings, people were cooking supper and you're like, what are you cooking? And what are you having? And, da, 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 da. and, like, and people, it was really like everybody was loving, oh, I'm doing this, oh, I'm doing that. And I was like, I don't understand what's going on here. This is a strange socialization ritual that I am not familiar with. Curiosity and connection. <laughs> oh, that's the fifth one, connection. Oh, yeah, yeah, that would be definitely you. So all the people are welcome. You're curious about what's going on and in the world and always learning, connecting the people. That's why the coffee shop would still work. The grocery store, not so much. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting to me that you couldn't do it anywhere, but coffee shop is one of the places that you totally could. There's so many jobs that you could do. Yeah, theoretically, you could do it anywhere. But, you know. <laughs> If we're going to be honest, no, no, not gonna. 
It's not going to be the toilet. Something that really annoys me if we're just listing our gripes, which I know we're not, but I'm going to start, is that we always have to tie the calling to the wage. And this has been driving Mm -hmm. me a little bit crazy. So it's always been the case that the thing I do to earn money is be a stay-at-home parent of someone with a really demanding job. And I'm transitioning out of that. As I have forementioned, it does not take 24-7 to parent the children anymore. How do you answer this question of like, what do you do for a living? And I have solved this by saying I run a not-for-profit because Mm -hmm. I run a not-for-profit not full time. 20 hours a week would be lots. Like that's an overestimation of the amount of time I spend doing it. But I don't charge any money for it. Because if I did, we wouldn't be able to grow in the way we are. And it's really important to me that Kathy and Lynn be well paid as soon as possible. It's important that the money goes to Flaming Chalice International. There's a number of priorities. You're doing this as a passion project. It's a passion project. And also, I have enough from alimony and support it and the calculations that I feel like the amount of money I have is a perfectly good amount of money for a person to have. I don't need to earn more money. And whenever I talk about that with other people who are interested in doing interesting things in the Unitarian Universalism, they say, right, but this isn't a real thing. It was a volunteer thing. It's not replicable or it's not just, it's not sustainable if you have someone who's putting in that amount of time for free, which I used to accept. If by accept you mean roll your eyes bite your tongue. (laughs) No, I used to try and, I don't know, I used to try and explain why it was legit. But now I think, you know what, when I was a congregational president, I put in 20 hours a week. Nobody ever said congregations are an unsustainable model. There's a ton of free volunteer time going into congregations. And the advantage of volunteerism is you do get to pick your passion a little bit more than you do when you're paid. And the ministry that I observed when I was a teenager in the Christian denomination that my dad came from, so a lot of my family, Those ministers don't actually get paid. They give up all of their possessions and they live in the homes of congregants and they live incredibly simply and then nobody can tell them what they have to do. Or Fougence's ministry when he had a day job. Like, I think to say that things are only real if you're being paid for them is a real bad idea. Now, to say all of our important roles are only accessible to people who aren't being paid is also terrible. Because there's huge chunks of people who can't afford to not be paid. And then none of those people have voices in your movement. But to say that you have to be paid and have a full-time job and this huge disruptive thing that work is, then Mm -hmm. shuts out recent retirees and stay-at-home parents or people who need to have a day job to bring home the bills but want to do a passion project on the side. Like, I am now getting very grumpy with that idea that there is anything wrong with me doing the work and not being paid for it. I think you should be grumpy because I think we're reshaping the universe. Yeah. And it's okay to not be contained in this box of that. We're right back to the that's how it's always been done or this is how we've decided it should be done. What we don't want to ask is for people to jeopardize their health and their well-being and their financial status to give all their time away to do the work we want them to do. That would be a crappy thing to do. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there are centuries of people who built a family business where the whole family pitched in until it was successful and maybe made seven cents an hour, right? And that's how you built something. This is one of the ways we help each other cause something to occur. Yeah. And I want to go back and just say... I am always so frustrated that one of the early questions we ask people is, what do you do for a living? Yeah. Because defining people by their job. Yeah. yeah. I think you should come up with a more creative lie. It would be No, I lie and say run it on for profit. If anyone ever says, what, you're not paid? Then is that what you do for a living? I say, you didn't ask me how do I access money. You asked me what I do for a living and this is what I do for a living. I think you should say something like, I force people to moderate social media where people argue about religion and politics all day. (laughs) 
was about to say Kathy does that, but no, you didn't say I do any of the work. You said I forced Kathy to do the work. One of the things that's unusual about our board is that while we make sure that things happen that are in line with the mission of Mirth and Dignity, we are not very hands-on in telling people how to do things, particularly Kathy and Lynn with the moderating, because they're on the ground doing this thing that is very new that they are the experts in, right? Like It's so right. new that they are the experts. Kathy was sort of noticing the lack of direction from the board. And she's like, but I'm not used to working this way. I normally work within a congregation and the board has opinions and they want to hear what I'm doing. And she's mm -hmm. like, how will I know what I'm supposed to do if the board's not telling me? <laughs> I was trying to explain, right? Because I'm also steeped in that sort of colonial paradigm of we should be telling you what to do. And then I was like, wait a second, Kathy, we haven't told you what to do in years. Like your question of could we do it this way? That's how we've always done it. The only instruction we've ever given you was to recruit volunteers. That's the only direct instruction to which you responded. I don't think that will work. And then it didn't. Exactly. <laughs> you know why? Because we weren't in the, on the ground in the Facebook group and we didn't know what we were talking about. Exactly. <laughs> That is another thing that I feel we often set up organizations in ways that the people who are setting the direction and making a lot of the decisions aren't the people who are actually on the ground doing the work. And that creates a real problem mm -hmm. in terms of mm -hmm. realism. I want to add that Kathy and Lynn are excellent at what they mm -hmm. do. So one of the reasons the organization doesn't have to be hands-on is because it chose wisely. In the world of finances and what do you do for a living and volunteerism and all the complexity in that, it always takes me back to that story we have about a congregational leader in Saskatoon who at a certain point in her career decided they were comfortable, they had the resources they needed to live on, and now she could take her mad scientist skills <laughs> and donate them to the environmental organization, right? She means like big scientist skills, not that this person was a mad scientist. <laughs> That's right. Her hair is neatly combed. <laughs> she's a very proper human being. <laughs> but she's a wise being who loves and cares about the planet. And the local environmental organization could never have afforded her. Mm -hmm. But she gave them her labor because she could afford her own life. Mm -hmm. She was able to donate her time so she could do what she was passionate about and give them something they could never afford to purchase. If we're going to turn around and say, well, that's unreasonable because we could never afford to pay her, <laughs> then we would never have had all these years of her wisdom and goodness yeah. leading this organization. And she wouldn't have had the satisfaction of doing something that is so meaningful for her that she felt like she's actually contributing to the well-being of the world. Yeah. Like, we can't be caught in structures. We don't want to punish anybody. We don't want to make people suffer. But not all things fit all people in all situations. Yes. Soapbox finished. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> so let's go back to this idea of ministry. Mm -hmm. Are you sure that when you think that people look at you sideways when you call the work that you do a ministry, are you sure that some of that feeling didn't come from inside of you. Yeah, but I need to correct it if people think that I am. There are people who make a big deal about the distinction between who is a minister and who is not a minister. I feel like I would be trying to like if you walk into a room and say, hi, I'm Dr. So-and-so, but you are not actually Dr. So-and-so. Do you know that that's one of the reasons that I don't own ministerial robes? Is why? That there are people who make a really big distinction between people who are a minister <laughs> and are not a minister. Because historically, like in that prophethood of all believers mm -hmm. thing all the people in the church wore robes oh cool you were all the saints in the christian tradition everybody was the saints how did you know who owned the fanciest clothing on sunday then 
You didn't because you all wore robes and you were the same same. But how could you tell poor and rich apart? You can't. Yay! Oh my goodness. <laughs> That's the model of congregational robes that I love. So I would more than happily preach or officiate in robes if everybody in the room was wearing mm -hmm. them. It's kind of like school uniforms, right? Yeah. It's a It was an identifier that you were a part of this thing and... It made you not better or worse. You didn't have fancier or lesser clothes. Y'all had the same thing. It's an equalizer. Mm -hmm. And I love that. And the fact that now we've sort of lifted up the learned ministry and you wear the fancy robes and the thing. I'll wear a stole because I like, that's like the like the giant necktie that hangs loose over your shoulders yeah. with um, symbols and images <laughs> and pretty fabric. And mine has the Northern Lights on it. It's Aww. my favorite. Because I take a moment when I put it on to just say you are working in this moment and you're here to serve these people. So mm -hmm. get your focus straight. And it helps people understand this person is the minister because I have a job. It's kind of like wearing a name tag in the grocery store. When I would officiate weddings and funerals, I would wear a stole because people need to be able to scan the room and figure out who the officiant is when they have a question. <laughs> people have lots of feelings about this, lots mm -hmm. of thoughts about this. This is one of those it's important to me or I couldn't care less things, just like mm -hmm. the term ministry. Yeah, it's why I don't own robes and don't wear them. The other reason that I I have an issue with the ministerial authority idea, partially because it's been misused horribly uh, in all sure. kinds of places and ways and stuff. Any place with authority has misuse. Yeah, all forms of authority have been misused. Absolutely. Says the defensive minister. <laughs> I'm not even, I'm not trying to make an argument that has been mis more misused than any other type of authority. I'm not making any statement either way. It might be. It might be, but I haven't thought that through. I was always very aware that if you said to someone, tell me about your concept of ministerial authority, the ministers who responded with, people need to respect ministerial authority, and I worked really hard, and I know these things, and people need to understand that, were not the ministers I wished to emulate. And the ones who right. said, I will earn my authority through the relationship and people, how they see me, those were always yeah. the ones that I wanted to emulate. And so that's the other reason why I'm cautious about those words. Mm -hmm. Although really it is because the word ministry doesn't actually work anywhere other than a religious context. And I'm not working always in a religious context, but it is also that other thing. Can I tell you the story from when I went for my psychological testing? I remember the guy, so they, they test you for all kinds of uh, personality traits and any kind of, <laughs> what'd you say? Psychopathy. <laughs> and psychopathy and all the things. Are you dangerous? Are you dangerous? They run you through all these different things. So he starts giving me the spiel and he starts with, you score 30 on the extrovert scale. And I said, I'm not, no, I don't. What's it out of, 27? <laughs> I said, no, I said, you are wrong. I score higher than 30. And then he said, it's out of 30. And I said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I still think I should be at 31. And then he said something about that I score high on Pollyanna syndrome, which is where you see the world as better than it is. To mm -hmm. which I responded, that test was calibrated on an American Midwestern audience and American people are more suspicious and score differently on those traits than Canadian is. So what right, you... This is not a Canadian You are not test. picking up psychopathology. You are picking up a cultural difference. You're picking up Canadianism. <laughs> and then he says, and you also score high in psychopathic deviance. <laughs> oh, well, we knew that. And I was like, mm -hmm. and he goes, that means like someone for whom society's norms don't feel like a should quite the same way that other people's do. And that is why I love you. And I said, that's true. I am sometimes impervious to the social norms of conversations. And then there's this long pause and I'm thinking, like right now. <laughs> <laughs> 
oh, this is the spot where I'm supposed to reassure him. Oop. So I've argued back all the things and then he gets to the last one and he says, also, you score high on having problems with authority. And I took a breath to argue back. And then he looks at me and he grins and he blinks and I look at him and I grin and I blink and I say nothing. And then he looks at his sheet and said, but you want to be a Unitarian minister, right? And I said, yep. And he said, you should be fine then. (laughs) (laughs) I admire your self-control, not responding in that moment. He knew exactly what was up. (laughs) But the, the bottom line is he was kind of right in that having problems with authority hasn't actually been a huge problem. It's just meant I go in a different direction. And most Unitarians and Unitarian Universalists are actually quite fine with that. Yes, I think that's the way we be creative in the universe. Yeah, well, we argue back about everything. It's one of it's the reason Kathy's in charge of moderating the group along with Lynn <laughs> instead of me. <laughs> it's the reason we get nothing done. <laughs> I'm Liz James. I'm Ann Barker. And we are so glad that you could join us. 